Hello and welcome to this, the fourth Cap Gemini training podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about training material development. I'm Clive Barber. I'm going to be joined by my colleagues, Paul Duggins, Ollie Button and Mark Alden. We're all part of Cap Gemini's BTC, Business Transformation Consulting Practice. So I don't think there's any point in asking the question, what do we mean by training development? I think it's pretty obvious. It's it's the process we go through where we actually create training materials based on the training strategy and the training needs analysis. And obviously there's a variety of tools that we actually use to create the training materials depending on what they are. Can somebody just remind everybody what, what the process is before you actually start developing training materials? Well, Clive, is it, is it possible that you're thinking about the training strategy in TNA? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so pretty much the, the stuff we've talked about in the last two sessions that was a training needs analysis and a training strategy. Now, I guess um, the training needs analysis, or I think we agreed to call it the learning needs analysis, didn't we, is, is basically pointing out the materials that you need to develop, the methods that you are going to use to teach the materials. So basically that that's your first point of call when you're actually going to start developing the materials. Have any of you used prototypes on the projects you've worked on just to make sure that the materials we're producing hit the mark with the customer? Yeah, many times. And, and in fact, um, prototyping is, is something that I've often done, not always, but often done as part of the initial strategy. So where we're discussing, you know, with, with your stakeholders, what the potential training types might be or might be appropriate. It's, you know, to quickly mock up a wireframe or an example bit of content for something and say, look, this is an example of what we did elsewhere in terms of e-learning or something that supported a classroom type event and so on and so forth. So, yeah. I think it is particularly important because this tends to be the longest part of the, the, the training life cycle. So if you end up putting 15 people on a project that are developing training materials for six months and then your your customer or your sponsor turns around and says, well, that's not quite what we had in mind. You've wasted an awful lot of time and, and resource uh, that you're going to have to re redo. So that's why the prototyping and getting that sign off is important fairly early on in the process. How big do you think the prototype needs to be? Does it just need to be a few processes or maybe not even as big as that? I, th- I just think it's it's one example of everything that you're going to produce. So if it's a piece of e-learning, a process, a simulation, plus whatever else you're going to do. I, I think it needs to be sufficient to give the client or the relevant sponsors the the sense of how the output's going to be. So they, as learning professionals, you don't... You tend to maybe assume that people know what we mean by e-learning and we, we they know what we mean by the different interventions. But for someone who's not day in and day out doing training type work, they might not be able to visualise it at all. So it just gives them a bit of confidence of what the actual output is going to look like. Absolutely. And certainly with, with e-learning, there are different levels of e-learning. So you know, it's level one being the page turning heavily text-based stuff through to, I'm not sure what the levels are anymore, level five or level six, where you've got a, a huge amount of interaction. So you certainly don't want somebody thinking you're going to be producing level five and six when all you had in mind was, was level one. So that's another good reason to, to check and uh, get the prototype, prototype signed off before you proceed. Yeah, and it's managing your expectations of your client as well, isn't it? So they, 
they don't get a nasty surprise at the end. For me, it's all about just giving them a, it's wetting the, the client's appetite, isn't it? And it's, it's a little bit of a lesson in terms of the art of the possible. But I have noticed, I have to say, I have noticed it, a slight shift in, in sort of the, the prototype processes. There is such a thing over the years, because I remember a number of years ago when programs tended to be, you know, scaled in terms of factors of years as opposed to months as they all are seem to be now is that back in those days we used to prototype certainly in the sap arena and it used to be quite a rigid process quite formal it, it was almost a, a deliverable with a sign off stage gate and so on and so forth applied to it but everything now because obviously we're moving so much more agile get that one in you know everything seems to become much more fluid and less formalized and so it's quick and easy and i feel still think there's definitely a need to prototype stuff but i think we're probably just evolving the way we go about prototyping okay so here's here's two questions in one i guess how do we build in transfer into training materials and i guess the, the other question in there is what is transfer what do we mean by training transfer what do you mean Clive? <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> do, do you mean like knowledge transfer to the techies no, it's 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 basically transferring skills and knowledge from the classroom into the workplace, like the, like the theor- the theoretical into the into the actual. Yeah. Well, I guess all formats of training, but specifically around face to face classroom type, more personal events. Uh, I think you know it, it's that old um, approach where you it's an explanation demonstration. And so on. So people have lots of hands on, aren't they? So every every opportunity for people to be involved in the session and, and, and sort of trying out a new process for themselves. So for me, there's there's definitely a strong element of that. Otherwise, the danger is obviously that it becomes a presentation and people just shut off and don't retain any knowledge at the end of it. Yeah. I think it's important that the content in the training is relatable and realistic so that people can uh, picture themselves doing it in the real real world context um rather than just being a sort of theoretical exercise Mm. that they then that just sort of is abstract and doesn't have any any relation to their day job i think the other thing is there we would probably talk a bit more about tools a little bit later on but um some of the electronic performance support type tools uh like sap enable now walk me what fix etc that provide just-in-time interactive help features within an application they actually provide immediate transfer so people are actually learning something as they're actually doing it as well so i guess another answer is it depends on the tools you're using as well i think going to blockers as well and actually considering things such as e-learning one of the things which again people who are trainers never get using names like donald duck and mickey mouse and using stupid things in there just puts another blocker in people just puts another blocker in basically so so again making it real and then undermining it by having donald up being the person who's got a problem just it's just a, a foolish mistake to make i was just gonna yeah add to that and 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 so things like names is a great example but also like you were saying earlier ollie uh, about using real you know getting the right context into the content so you know it's using a, a realistic business scenario uh, or a what if you know, if you're if you're dealing with a process that's like some sort of corrective action, you know, picking the right data. So if you're training people who, you know, make something for a living, you don't talk about examples that have no relevance to them. 
and obviously that in itself can add further problems for the training team because obviously that means there's more onus on you know making sure you've got access to the right data within so whatever environment you're training from it's really important to have uh, an sme or reviewers that can give you that clear feedback on what works and what doesn't work um and as, as much involvement as you can have from people that would would be end users as possible um the better i think the other thing that i've found useful is to do some sort of theoretical training with not off the shelf examples exactly but something reasonably generic but then letting people bring their own real world real life situations into the classroom and then obviously it's a, a slightly risky approach but you know if you as the trainer are confident that you can work with them to you know develop the real world solutions to their problem that's pretty powerful yeah i think that's a really good way of doing it because if you're using SME, sometimes they may be a little bit more senior, so less at the co-face, so to speak. Whereas if you actually get the people in the classroom to do it, one, you really are getting the things that they do deal with on a day-to-day basis. And two, it also makes them feel better because you're taking on their expertise. You're showing that you trust them to give you that expertise and you're not pretending that you're a know-all who knows all the things that they deal with day in, day out. So, yeah, I think that's a really good thing. Mm, it is and I'm seeing that to a degree where I am at the moment with the client that I'm working with because for for whatever reason and it has been called out several times within the program there seems to be a general reluctance for the process owners to nominate process leads or people SMEs to act on their behalf within the program which means that you know the people that we have to ask the detailed questions about the way the business works and what data that they want to use in training what scenarios make the most sense to for us to replicate they don't have that level of detailed knowledge because they tend to be quite senior within the client's organization so they know how it should work but in reality it's been so long since they actually did it as their day job they've forgotten what it means to be a consultant so the challenge so i agree yeah because and we're seeing that through those sorts of challenges so having access to the right smes is is vital i think for training development when do we need to think about or do we need to think about evaluation as part of the training material development phase yeah, I think you need to start thinking about evaluation as early as possible because you need to set uh, your targets and your measures for how you're going to decide whether your training has been effective or not. And if you have that always at the forefront of your mind, then you'll always be kind of heading in the right direction with what you're putting together. Yeah, it's, it's a subject that I think I tend to raise with the client early doors when you're doing the strategy and the needs analysis piece because it obviously goes back to that how are we going to measure the success of the training program we don't want it to just be something that's rolled out and deployed we want to actually have some sort of way to 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 you know some sort of evidence tangible evidence that it has been successful or indeed if there's been, if it's if it's not been successful so we can take some remediate actions to 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 put that um to put that right so i think for me it's something that we definitely need to consider when we're getting into training development but the conversations have potentially happened way way before that i think another thing that people don't do very often is obviously link objectives to evaluation and testing and things like that and on the whole i don't think people really get how important objectives are or is it just me is it just me that's obsessed with getting your objectives right no it's an interesting point clive actually because i was i was seeing some third party training today 
And actually, I was really, really pleased because they had worthwhile objectives in there. And one of the reasons I was really, really pleased was, wow, that's a bit of a surprise. So actually going in and seeing them in there, I think probably proves the point that actually, when you do see a lot of these third party things, Nova don't consider objectives and actually measurable objectives and things that are that are pertinent to the thing that you're trying to learn as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a vital thing and, and, and they're right, not given the, the importance that it deserves. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, when I was in a position, I was actually buying in training if the objectives, because they're one of the things you tend to see early on, if the training didn't have objectives with a behaviour, a standard and a condition, i.e. a behaviour, what the learners are going to actually do to show that they've benefited from the learning, the standard to which they're going to do it, you know, remember the five or, you know, recount the five key elements of blah, 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 and the, the condition under which they're going to prove to you that they've they can remember those or recount those five elements, then I th- I'm just kind of thinking, well, you're not a proper training company. I'm not going to touch you with a barge pole type thing. So the objectives are also really important, I think, because, again, get them signed off by a stakeholder or a sponsor, and then that's the way you judge how successful your training has been. And you should be able to directly take your objectives and they kind of form the post-course testing, if you like, if you're actually going to do testing. And then you've got a very black and white case to go back to your sponsor and say, look, the training has been successful. These were our objectives. This is what people have done to prove that they've met the objectives and therefore our training is a success. So were we talking about level two, Kirkpatrick? I guess we are, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's one step beyond. So the level one, Kirkpatrick being the happy sheets, how did you find the training, was the coffee nice, etc. Important stuff, and generally that's the only level that people go to. But yeah, level two is, um, well, you tell me, Ollie, it's it's basically proving that you've people have learned, the knowledge, have the knowledge or the new skills that you said they would have at the outset. Yeah, so I mean, it comes back to that transfer question earlier, doesn't it? So the level two is, is can they do it in the classroom? The level three is can they do it in their job? So that's the that's the jump that you need to try and uh, ensure is made. But it's it's hard it's hard to measure once they've left your your control and they're out of the classroom. Yeah, and again, I think we've talked about this before, haven't we? With with the way we work on projects, it's very rarely you're still around in six months' time or a year's time to actually do anything beyond beyond level two. So one, I think some of the new um, adoption tools that we briefly touched on earlier as well that they help that i think because i I think because the way that they present help and support to people when they're actually working in the workplace at the point of need that helps to make that leap between level two and level three so obviously you know in a traditional training environment you know when you're in a classroom for example or if you're doing some uh, e-learning or some other type of training media that you're consuming it's potentially quite easy or uh, you know, you might do an assessment at the end of that and you can get to level two and prove that you actually have retained some knowledge for a period of time in the training situation. But then, as you say, as you say, Ollie, when you get to get to level three and prove that you have that level of competence in, in the workplace, that was quite a challenge, I think. And one of the reasons why perhaps certainly from our perspective in Capgemini, we've perhaps not been as strong as promoting that level of assessment with some of our clients as we ought to have done it's often not for the one to try in our hasten to add you know but now with some of the newer tools we have in place maybe there's an opportunity for us to take that leap into level three in a much easier way so we can judge how well people are retaining the knowledge by the behavior that they exhibit in when they get back to their job 
whether they're being supported, whether walk me needs to walk them through a process or whatever, you know, whether they're sailing alone and, and they're quite happy and quite capable of doing the job. So I mentioned testing a little bit earlier on, which is obviously very link, closely linked to objectives and evaluation and all that good stuff. What are your views on testing? Do you often, are you often allowed to test? Would you normally um, try and test people as part of your training? I think it's very important to gauge the culture of the particular client they're working at. So some clients uh, will react very badly to having a test put in front of them. Um, some might really relish the prospect, um, but you really need to get a good sense from from the people, not just the project sponsors who probably will want something like that, uh, but also from the people on the ground as whether they've got a kind of survey fatigue or anything like that. I think it's important as well. I know in, in Germany, the workers' councils won't let you do testing a lot of the time as well. So there are cultural and uh, union-type issues as well, which you need to be uh, aware of before you go too far down the line. I think that question is actually quite interesting in the context of training development because on one hand, you know, you, you could say in, in terms of testing being an activity that traditionally happens immediately before training or often in line with training and development within a program, typical program, and often a source of information. I'm thinking about test scripts specifically uh, and example scenarios that helps inform training development. So that's one aspect. You know, what we've talked about in terms of testing the people on you know, as a measure of success for training. So some sort of assessment, there's that as well. And there's obviously the other aspect is from the from the perspective of training development, I think it's particularly important to make sure that you test whether the stuff you're building actually works. And I'm thinking specifically now around more the technology-based training, so e-learning, simulations, in-app stuff. But also as well, I think it's important to test it and pilot it if it's a face-to-face -face type event or type type of training that you're developing. So I, I sort of looked at that question and thought, oh, this could go one of three ways. <laughs> I'm going to go all run a call, but I've got an anecdote. So I, I won't name names to, to um, save people's uh, blushes, but I was working on a project that it, it was really important from the point of view the phrase we kept getting told was, if people don't know this stuff, people are going to die. So I'm, I'm going to leave that at that. And then we got to the point of talking about, you know, questions and testing. And they said, right, we want 20 questions, which we could get through because it was quite a long course. And we want people to know what we're talking about. So it's got to be 100% pass rate, which immediately starts thinking, mm, OK. And then we got in a room and talked about, well, what's valid questions? And as we were going along, there were these quite senior people there. And people started saying, well, what about so-and-so? And people going, ooh, I don't know if you answer that one. What's the answer to that? And then they were looking up online and they go, that is such a difficult question. That's going in. So I was there thinking, <laughs> right, so you want 100%, so you but you, you've immediately started saying, here's a question that's ludicrously difficult. And, it's, and they started egging each other on. So they ended up with five or six questions where they were saying, oh, if people know that, they deserve a promotion all on their own. And then about two weeks in, we were dragged into this emergency meeting, which I knew what it was going to be about is nobody's passing the exam. Well, of course, nobody's passing the exam because you took great pleasure in putting in questions that are worth you know, a million pounds and who wants to be a millionaire. So it's, it's got to be put at the right level. You've got to allow people to succeed. And I think if you do put the pass marks too high, dare I say, as per an exam that I took recently um, with something that sounds like stum, where you've got to get 85%, that's actually quite pressurising. Because you know you can only get a couple of questions wrong before you've already failed. 
as it was, I flukes it. But uh, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Ben. No, I didn't fluke it. It was an astonishingly clever and erudite piece of uh, work on my part. Um, but yeah, it, it, you've you've got to allow people to succeed, not just put measurements into fill, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always been my view that um, it's not the delegates that that fail; it's you failed as a trainer if everybody doesn't pass pass the test in your training. So you've done something wrong, or you have to take responsibility for for people not doing the learning that you've uh, tried to help them with. Just to add one other aspect to the testing question, there are some organisations that will have uh, rewards or credits for people who pass assessments on their training. So you may have to tie into that. So people may ask, you know, will I get a, a training credit for this? And it may be something that you your project doesn't have the authority to to grant. So that's another consideration. Um, and also there's this new concept of learner, learner records, stores, those kind of things where people have got their transferable history of training that they've completed that they cart around with them. So if they move to another position, they've got this kind of online um, accreditation of all of their completed training. So that's another another sort of new factor that's creeping in, I think, rather than just being treated as one course in isolation. Well, speaking of things that are training, what are we seeing in the industry for changes in delivery methods and delivery tools? What are some of the key changes that we're seeing in the last, probably in the last couple of years? I think the big thing that's been coming in is more sort of point of need training. So micro learning, people call it. So rather than having one big, long training course, and then that's your lot, people might have a sort of kickoff event or something like that, but then ultimately they'll access the training as and when they need it. So there's various um, in, in solution training options. So you can have overlays over, over an application that give you sort of process guidance and access to training notes and things like that at the at the very point that you need it. There's also various other LMS type things that will give you point of need options rather than. Well, this was something I discovered recently. There's something called um, learning learning experience platforms, LXPs or LEPs, which are basically learning management systems. They've actually got built into them some kind of adaptive learning capabilities or AI capabilities. So it actually, depending on the level of experience, knowledge and skills you've currently got, it will guide you to sort of the micro learning or the pieces of learning that are relevant to you personally. So I think along with those, you know, the digital adoption systems or the EPSS systems, as we used to call them, you've got the the LXP systems. Those things are being done now. They're, They're real live applications are actually, you know, we can adopt relatively cheaply. When you start talking about virtual reality and augmented reality, I think that's technology that's not quite there yet, is it, from a, for, a, for a daily use perspective. Very exciting, but I don't think the tools, the tools are there yet to use it on a regular basis. It's still quite expensive. I'll tell you yeah. what, if we had this conversation in about a year, I, I bet it'll have moved on so much. The, the way it moves on in leaps and bounds is astonishing. It is, actually. I mean, that's, that's, that's the best thing about technology. It's actually getting useful and easy to use and reliable that's you're right i think you, things may have changed massively in uh, in 12 months time yeah i think in, especially in terms of the experience platforms i think there's a question now in terms of the training development because the question is then what do you develop in terms of content so if some of these newer platforms are are, are much cleverer that you know they have their own ai capability and they're able to adapt what they present to users based on 
you know, the user's behavior and the user's learning or requirements as they interact with the platform. What does that mean from a training development perspective? So it, it may mean that actually we no longer need to create training materials about specific process, we, but we create lots and lots of bite-sized chunks that essentially cover everything. And then the platform presents what the user needs based on what the user is doing at that particular time. So maybe that's, you know, that, you know, as we as we do more of this stuff, you know, we might see that it's it's a shift as well in terms of what we need to do because it it might be that we're just creating content that covers everything, every scenario, but perhaps as a bite-sized chunk or a piece of micro learning, and then the platform or the technology, whatever it may be, that delivers that learning to the learner is doing the clever bit, which is only giving them the bits they need when they need it. Well, I think that's exactly right. So you can still you can still be using your, your um traditional tools but the way there's the delivery systems that are actually delivering and using intelligence to actually focus on what that learner requires that's 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 one of the key things and and i think that's a, a significant step forward you could then also link that into some of the social learning as well so you're actually getting user generated training materials and i'm always a little bit nervous about that just allowing anybody and everybody to get stuck in but some of the content is going to be worthwhile so even if it's just a very simple youtube video or something like that 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 people can make available then 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 why not do something for your colleagues hopefully it won't do us out of a job but um (laughs) but you never know as ever with these things there's another challenge of us generally being brought into a project um so it's going to be at an organization which may already have an established training function that may have a variety of tools already in place that we have to go along with uh, there's also then the question of the sustainability of the materials so any the stuff that paul's talking about where you have to create basically every possible scenario someone's then got to update that and look after it and maintain it for the future so it does add some complexity to it and certainly what we're seeing where i am at the moment is that i, I think we might see a shift in terms of the trainer or training team if you like develops less because of the uh, the ongoing overhead of maintaining that content and, and you start to move from a creation to a, a curation model so more and more you you are curating stuff that the vendor already provides intermixed with or interwoven with its bespoke content that you're writing specifically with that client just to keep it real for the people that are learning i think that's a really important point is looking at the cloud-based systems now that are getting updated and and refreshed Mm. every couple of months like the oracle and the sap they're now actually starting to generate their own you know content so every time a new release is sent out new training materials is automatically generated as well there's less flexibility in cloud systems so you know it's a case of you adopt your processes to to to, to match the system so the system's not getting very customized so basically here's the training materials that you need mm. and why not it's pretty rare that we go in on a project that's implementing something off the shelf though isn't it there's always some degree of customization or bespoke um, yeah, you, absolutely. But I, I, I do think with the advent of pretty much every system is cloud-based now with regular updates, I think you know that, that need for customization is, is going to be reduced to some degree. But yeah. every, every organization is unique and special. Well, in their own. 
in their own eyes. Sadly, they're not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think the challenge is bigger than training, though. But it, it sort of it branches out and it and it impacts our colleagues over the fence in change management. Because will we ever get to a point where client companies actually really truly recognise the importance and the value of good transformational change? I'm not sure. We've been talking about this for for a long time now, and we still, you know, we still more often than not work with clients that don't really see the value of, of change management. They don't necessarily understand transformation, even though we, you know, we try to help them. It's it's a discipline that is often, I think, seen as something that's secondary in, in importance behind technology, behind other things. But the shift in, in platforms to like a SaaS, a service-based uh, offer where you're only leasing a tool, you don't own that and it's not an on-premise solution anymore, eventually that's going to have to m- mean that client companies are going to have to wake up to the fact that they need to understand what good transformation is and they just can't keep bespoking the heck out of everything because they can't change the way they do things otherwise they're going to get left behind aren't they indeed so has, has anybody got experience with uh, working with offshore development teams yes yeah, yeah i have clive um and i've had experiences at both ends of the spectrum i've had people that i work with who have been exceptionally good where they know the stuff inside out you have a conversation with them you set them going then what comes back is being absolutely brilliant and then, unfortunately, I've had it at the other end of the spectrum where you've dealt with people who supposedly know what they're talking about and they really don't get it. Either they don't understand what it is that you're after, or actually maybe they don't know things quite to the level of detail as, as you're expecting them to do. Um, but I suppose the reality is that's exactly the same as we'd get face-to-face, you know, working with people in the same office. The difficulty, and I think this is where it becomes really important, is is you do keep needs to having those touch points. You can't leave somebody for a week and then go back to them and then say, how are you getting on? And, you know, hopefully everything's going to be sensationally good because if it isn't, that's a week that's gone. So I think the difference between in the same office and offshore is you just keep, you just need to have those touch points a lot more regular, maybe even in the first couple of days, more than once a day as well. It doesn't need to be more than five minutes. Yeah, like you, I've had really good experience of offshore development um, in the last two companies I've worked for, two big consultancy companies. I think traditionally there's a offshoring that got quite a bad reputation, certainly for you know, you know the early call centres and things like that. But now I think we've all got our act together, and I've had in, you know incredibly good results from working with offshore teams. I think the key thing is to get a very good manager in place that you've got a good relationship with again set very clear objectives very clear deliverables dates and exactly the type of materials that you want to be produced and and i think you can usually expect to be as long as you know you're having maybe daily or you know twice weekly calls as you say with with that manager to check on progress and, and sort any issues out make it very clear to them exactly what you want that you know, sometimes you're happy for them to challenge you if if they think something is wrong, and all those kind of things. Then you can actually have very good, uh, very very uh, cost-effective outputs from from offshore development. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it? We've seen some things from within our right shore teams recently. Some of their their visuals and things they can pull together are just sensational. 
Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, really way better stuff. than I could do in a month for Sundays. So you know, it's it's some of it's absolutely superb. Yeah, and generally you're dealing with a very capable, very intelligent, very highly qualified workforce. So how how do you actually manage the development process? I think it has to be a very iterative process. You need to be checking in very regularly with your spot with your reviewers. You need to be making sure you're on track all the time. Um, you need to have clear milestone dates so people know what's expected from them in terms of reviewing and providing feedback and it'll depend on the team that you've got in place to some extent if you've got a more experienced team that kind of know the ropes you can probably be a bit more hands-off but if you've got some more experienced people or maybe some of the offshore people that you haven't worked with before um, you need to put a bit of structure in place and make sure that they're checking in regularly and just going back and forth and regularly testing the water making sure you're on track yeah i think a development tracker as a tool is is quite invaluable in this scenario as well particularly where you're having to create or responsible for a team that are creating and developing lots and lots of individual assets training assets in whatever format they may be it's quite a useful thing to to plot that to plot the development in some sort of a tracker because then obviously it's very useful then because you can monitor progress and then feed that progress back to whoever within the program and i've always found from experience that's very well received within the programs that i've been on because it demonstrates that we're in control. We know what we're doing. We, we're developing against a plan and we can track if we're sort of falling behind or going off plan very quickly, which in sometimes in a, in a training sense can be a little bit difficult, particularly on a large ERP type program where there might be a need to create an awful lot of material over an extended period of time. Okay, good. All right, so last question. You're presented with a scenario. We've got a a new finance and HR system at a customer site. What is going to be your ideal training solution? I think the thing is, there's no getting away from it. And it goes back to the question about what's new in, in the world of training. There's still no getting away from certain points where you do need those bums on seats, classroom sessions. And I think that classic accounts receivable, accounts payable, and the other one that I've forgotten that I hate. What's that Gen- one? General, General Ledger. Ledger. Oh, General Ledger. Oh, my word. <laughs> can I understand that? No. Um, and you can keep that in. Um, just, just, there's no getting away from it that you do need to get those people because it's, it's hardcore stuff. Whereas if it's getting your holidays in on, on an HR system or your expenses, then it's, it's, that's going to be you know a nice little bit of e-learning short to the point. So I know it's a cliche, but it is our, I am doing the speech marks, our blended approach, isn't it? Well, exactly. That's kind of what I'm getting at. What is the ideal blended approach? I'm talking, you know, you've mentioned a few e-learning um, simulation type videos within an EPSS, which is available just in time. It's relevant. It's interactive. It can be available on, as a mobile solution, et cetera, et cetera along with a social learning platform that gives you access to a, you know, a timeline to some kind of live chat facilities. You've got groups and teams. It gives you access to videos and images and surveys and Q&A type thing to experts and things like that. One thing we haven't mentioned is learning management systems. Is there still a place for a learning management system? Yeah, I think there is. They're just like everything else. So they are evolving, aren't they? So they're no longer just a platform for hosting content with a little bit of analytics thrown in to sort of measure how much of it and what's been consumed and when. I think, you know, I think isn't isn't there a natural progression into the experience platforms 
that we that we mentioned earlier and then perhaps beyond that as well i think that's what you're seeing if you look at some of the the big players out there like cornerstone and have a look at what how they're trying to evolve their product so that it overlaps into what were traditionally different sectors you know so it becomes almost like a rapid e-learning tool in its own right I still think they've got a part to play, providing they evolve with current trends. And I think, yeah, the one you mentioned, Cornerstone, are actually doing a, an, an LXP type um, uh, development as, on that as well to make it, you know, adaptive and AI driven mm. as well. So that's that's important. And I think quite a lot of them have got the social um, learning elements as well. So it's all good stuff. Yeah, and I think I think those platforms. Um, the interesting thing about those platforms are that it's it's more of uh, you know it's 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 like um, it's the culture of learning within an organisation, isn't it? It's, you know, a product like that, unless the program is to deploy that product or that platform, like a like a success factors or like a cornerstone, for the first time, or to replace something else. I think in many organisations that we end up working with, it, it, it's do they have that platform already? Is there a strong learning culture within that organisation? Because it's likely that if they don't and there isn't, you know, it, it's highly unlikely that we're going to a recommend or even if we did recommend that as a potential solution for them, it, it's unlikely that they'd have the budget to take on something of that size and shape on top of the cost of the programme itself. Well, that concludes this episode on training material development. In our next podcast, we're going to be talking about training delivery. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll be able to join us for the next one. Mm-hmm.